are here in 11FS headquarters in London for episode 5 of Blockchain Insider. Today we're breaking down the arrest of Alexander Vinnick and a seizure of a Bitcoin exchange, BTCE, Ethereum miners chartering jumbo jets, and we talk to Dr. Gideon Greenspan behind Multichain and Rita Trinkler of Mellonport. And now let's get on with the show. Great. So time for some news before we get into our interviews. And of course, I am joined by the wonderful Colin Platt. Colin, how are you keeping, sir? Doing fantastic. Thanks. Uh, in spite of all the news, in spite of everything that's going on, we've had an interesting few weeks. If it's not the SEC giving guidance, it's uh, it's Bitcoin potentially forking. But between those two major events, we've got a couple of other interesting things that have happened in the last couple of weeks. Um, and I think the first most recent one was uh, there's, a, there's an exchange called BTC-E, which have been taken down by the US Department of Justice. And a chap called Alexander Vinnick has been arrested in Greece. So what's the background to this one well you know we're, we're never short of drama in in the blockchain space and especially in the bitcoin space and and it seemed like last week we had an epic story talking about um ethereum and ethereum hackers this one goes way back to a, an early hack as well um mt gox uh was a very large the only bitcoin exchange in the beginning it was hacked um and money was stolen out of it uh, there was a lot of speculation about why that money was stolen, and this was way back in 2013, or to put that in, in Bitcoin years, sometime back at the beginning of the century. What happened essentially is uh, this Russian slash Bulgarian exchange had very lax uh, KYC rules, know your, know your customer, know your client rules, um, and was accused of money laundering. Um, there was a chap named Alexander Vinnik, a Russian national who was roughly attached to this. And initially it was come out and said um, that he in fact worked for the exchange. Uh, the exchange has since reputed this and said that he was only linked with the exchange at kind of an arm's length distance, uh, doing some trading, some brokering for the exchange. Um, it's estimated a lot of those those big hacks as um, Bitcoin ransomware things, like we saw with the, the NHS earlier this year, were estimated to be laundered, um, pulled back out into dollars or some other currency through BTCE. Um, it was generally seen as, as maybe not the best one. Uh, the US government was looking into this for a little while. Uh, the Department of Justice finally came down and decided, as, as you said earlier, to seize their website. Um, if you've seen like the Silk Road, they put up a little thing if you go into BTCE's website, and it says it's been seized by the US Department of Justice. Um, Alexander Vinnick, uh, was picked up while holidaying in Greece, uh, the poor chap. It was alleged that he, he had taken a lot of money and been buying a lot of Lamborghinis and Ferraris and other great things that you would do if you were laundering money. He was actually, because they do have a penchant for um, illusion, the U.S. Department of Justice charged him with 21 counts of uh, money laundering, looking at um, how he was uh, potentially going in running unregistered money transmission. And... Um, all types of other things linking right all the way back to Mount, Mount Gox and moving money outside of that. So it's pretty serious things that range from uh, 10 years in prison up to 20 years in prison, 21 times on these things. So if he's convicted on these things, which is still early days, he could be spending a whole lot of time in a U.S. jail. It could happen. And it's another one where it's damaging for Bitcoin, the brand, right? So there's news of somebody being arrested for money laundering, the Department of Justice coming in and shutting down a website after they'd just shut down two dark markets. Of course, Alpha Bay and Dream Market were shut down a couple of weeks ago, and that made the BBC News here in the UK. And it, it just perpetuates this perception that the technology is drug dealers and money launderers, which I think was, uh, if you cash your mind back to 2014, the big worry in financial services and why people ignored Bitcoin and went on to projects like Hyperledger and R3, where they took the currency out of it so that they could try and control it as much. And MT Gox was one where this is something where you know a lot of people would store their money at MT Gox instead of storing it themselves. I often said the metaphor here is it's kind of like uh, instead of having your wallet in your pocket, you give your wallet to somebody else and they pull all the money together uh, into a bigger wallet, but they left that wallet on the table and then wondered why it got hacked. Uh, it, the the mistake there is actually that everybody gave their money to these people who had poor security. There was nothing wrong with Bitcoin itself. 
oh, the idea of moving money around with Bitcoin. It was just that the one set of people that we gave all of our Bitcoins to just protected them very poorly because the onus is, is largely on the user. This is a slightly different thing, though. BTCE seems to have had poor, as you say, KYC AML control. So know your customer, know who they are, and prove they are who they say they are so that if they do something dodgy, we can track and trace them. Uh, and what I think is interesting about every time one of these stories happens, though, is that actually there's a pretty good trail of evidence. Bitcoin itself creates this perfect audit trail, which can't be edited, which provably can't be edited, that the authorities, I think, absolutely love because they can see when something dodgy is happening. And then all they have to do is connect that dodgy behavior to a real world identity. That takes a bit more work but it can be done. This would have been a lot harder, I think, in the traditional world of financial services where we've got uh, lots of different systems operated by lots of different people uh, trying to trying to pull all that apart. So you know, what are your thought reflections on Bitcoin, the brand, and what should we take away from this? Well, you know, I, I think that there's, there's a bit of, I don't know, what's the opposite of survivor bias? Um, obviously, Bitcoin is very attractive for doing things illegally because it is this uncensorable money. One, when something happens, it can't be undone. And it was designed that way. And, and Richard Brown on our previous show talked a bit about the why Bitcoin was designed the way it is. So that that's very important to it. Obviously, if something can be used maliciously, uh, it will be. And that's exactly what we've seen with Bitcoin. What's, what I think is very interesting is that um, this is another case coming right in off the tails of the SEC announcement last week, where we have a Russian national with a Bulgarian company running at, running the site, arrested in Greece for something that's alleged to be done in the US. I mean, this is a it's a truly global currency, Bitcoin, um, happening outside the US and the US regulators are looking into it, potentially about stealing money from a Japanese exchange. Nobody's setting foot in the US, yet the US is heavily involved. So I think this is a word of warning for anybody that's looking and saying, um, either directly in things that are, are clearly illegal, like money laundering, out to things where it's maybe less of a less of a thing, um, and and maybe not perceived as being as egregious, where we're selling unregistered securities, either to U.S. nationals or non-U.S. nationals through a blockchain. The U.S. government has very long arms, and Jeff Bandman talked about this on our show. Uh, I think you need to be very cautious, even if you think you have nothing to do with the U.S., that you may in fact do. Indeed. And I think that uh, maturity of law enforcement and maturity of government response has two sides to it. One, if you do something that is breaking laws, they now know how to identify that. And two, if you want to do something that's within the laws, there are now guidance for how to do that better. And I think that's an, an important distinction. Uh, there's been a lot of mudslinging I've seen um, on Twitter and on various uh, websites where they say that actually you know, the SEC has done something that it's just going to mean people don't do business in the US. But I've been speaking to people in Delaware and Illinois and Arizona who are actively trying to legislate on behalf of the US and uh, on behalf of their states and also work with entrepreneurs and startups to make that a great place to do business. But we've seen Zoog and we've seen Singapore do that do that really well. So it depends really uh, how we see this. But yeah, you're right that the long arms of the US government are, are what's happened here even though this was happening in uh, Europe and Russia. So uh, interesting one to watch so next story up colin because i gotta move us on there's a story here about ethereum miners renting boeing 747s to ship graphic cards around the world and then the company behind these graphic card chips amd their shares are soaring as a direct result so let, let's pick this one apart Who, why do they need graphics cards and what does mining ether look like and, and why on earth are they renting 747s do they need that many graphics cards I, I guess they need not only that many graphics cards, but they need them that quickly that they can't put them through the, the conventional posts that may go through a boat and take a couple of weeks. This is interesting for a few reasons. And, and before we get into it, I, I want to just say on this show, we don't give any investment advice either on AMD shares or on cryptocurrencies themselves. What's What's happened is effectively ether went from being worth next to nothing in 2014 2015 when it was first set up uh there was a pre-sale that, that was sold for about 20 cents now it's somewhere around 200 dollars, depending on when you're listening to it and and what happens in the next few days um amd it produces graphics cards and why why do you need graphics cards to be a miner well first of all let's take a step back and look at bitcoin when bitcoin first started the idea was people use their their conventional computers or the cpus inside those computers 
eventually somebody said, well, let's look at graphics cards because effectively those have a lot of really tiny little CPUs in there that are meant to do a few things really well. And those few little things were very good at doing hashing, um, interestingly. Generally, these really high-quality graphics cards are used for computer gamings. If you're, if you're a big gamer, you probably have spent a lot of money on a good graphics card to make sure everything's nice and silky smooth. There's a lot of processing in the background. That processing happens to work very well to do uh, hashing. Eventually, Bitcoin miners uh, migrated into what are called ASICs, or application-specific integrated chipsets. Try to say that three times fast. They are meant to do nothing but Bitcoin hashing. Ethereum came along in 2014, 2015, and they wanted to be somewhat impervious to these ASICs that had developed into a small cottage industry. And if you're following this Bitcoin uh, debate, you'll see that that is uh, very central to the politics of it. So they, they kind of wanted to move outside of that. And they said, let's build a, a new algorithm and then let's threaten to change it at some point in the future into what's called proof of stake, which is something we won't cover today, uh, but we will cover in the future because it's a very important thing. So everybody's just said, let's stick with these graphics cards, which are good at this thing, but we have to compete with gamers. We have to compete with other people. So you buy them from companies like AMD. Um, as a result, they've seen a lot of new revenues that they weren't expecting now that Ethereum prices have gone up thousandfold um, and started moving in and said, let's pick all these things up. They don't get delivered all the time. And that's the key point there, Colin. Um, let's, let's pick these AMD cards up because the price has gone up. Right, so the price of Ether went through the roof, and we found ourselves in a position where now these chips that allow you to mine Ether more or less out of thin air, well, except for the cost of electricity and running your computer for 24-7, you, you basically get these Ethers, and they were a lot easier to mine than Bitcoin. So it's it's like there was just gold in them, there hills, and you suddenly had a, a, a rush for people to buy pickaxes, uh, and now they're shipping these pickaxes across on Boeing 747s but actually the pickaxes are graphics cards that gamers were traditionally using and the companies that were shipping those graphics cards to gamers have seen their share price increase as a direct result. It's an interesting anomaly that we find ourselves in uh, that the price of a digital asset can really impact publicly traded companies. And, and really interesting outside of AMD a lot of companies are starting to look at um, what's happened because of Bitcoin mining or Ethereum mining potentially impacting them. Now, what was really interesting in this is AMD said um, in their forward guidance, they wouldn't directly be incorporating digital currencies like Ethereum uh, at this point. That may change in the future, but uh, no, we've talked a little bit about how disruption might affect banks um, generally negatively because of cryptocurrencies and blockchains. There, there is a positive upside for other types of companies. Um, and I think analysts in working, looking at equity research will start to look more and more at the impacts of cryptocurrencies and blockchains. And you'll start to hear more about it on CNBC and, and others outside of just Bitcoin prices have gone up and down because this does actually affect profits, which is, is quite interesting. And I think a positive thing. Absolutely. And I think uh, one more example, when people ask, when does blockchain become real? When does it cross over into the real world? This is a finite example right there. I think when people are asking, when will it become real? They're asking, when will it become real in my business in the way that I think it will become real? Not when will it become real? Because often that's outside of our worldview and outside of our perception until suddenly it's too big to ignore anymore. Um, and 747s are pretty hard to ignore. Alrighty. So last story from the news this week. Uh, there's Euroclear and Paxos have ended a partnership on gold settlement. And Colin, I'm going to need you to explain who Euroclear are, who Paxos are, and what they were trying to achieve. And then we can speculate about why they might have ended their uh, partnership. Exactly. And this is a bit sad. Simon, you and I both know the guys on both sides of this deal from, from our previous lives working in banks and from around the, the London blockchain scene, if it were. Yeah, let's let's start with that. Euroclear is a CSD. It's a centralized security depository. What that means is they take a list of who owns which shares. Let's just pull one out and say Tesco. They record that Tesco has recorded shares, how many they have, who owns them. What they also do is they, they move those things around. If Goldman Sachs sells 10,000 shares to Barclays, they update those records. Um, so they perform a lot of different critical functions. They keep all kinds of records when let's say Tesco pays a dividend to make sure that Goldman Sachs gets their right dividend and Barclays gets their right dividend in this. 
Um, they, they were working with this company called Paxos, which uh, was formerly called ItBit um, and split off. So ItBit is a, is a large Bitcoin exchange based in New York. Uh, Paxos set up by the same people and they looked at gold settlement. What that means is uh, we have a bar of gold sitting someplace, probably in a vault under Blackfriars Bridge. And Goldman Sachs, we're going again, sells it to this time JP Morgan. Uh, they're all sitting inside of JP Morgan's vaults. Why don't we tokenize that and move that through a blockchain? So they looked at setting up a blockchain and partnering with Euroclear, who has a very long experience doing this inside of their more traditional database systems on a new asset class like gold, which they don't currently work with at all, and said, why don't we try some of this new blockchain magic? Because for us, it's new. For us, it's all a new build um, and see what happens. I believe they had about 16 different banks working with them in some capacity over the course of the last year and a half or so, looking at what this partnership would look like, what this business looks like. Uh, they put out a press release this week saying that, unfortunately, they're, they're drawing that to a close. Uh, Paxos will continue on that, uh, but Euroclear doesn't look like we'll follow down, them down that road. And so this is interesting me for a number of reasons. Um, I think first and foremost that not everything's going to work that's new. And just because it's got DLT or blockchain on it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to work. And I think deep down we all kind of knew that. Um, two, it's interesting because I, I liken this to the continuous link settlement bank, CLS Bank. So um, CLS help uh, many banks manage foreign exchange. Um, grossly oversimplifying, but that's kind of their, their core function. They're a bank for banks for um, managing different currencies. And CLS Bank uh, announced that they have, uh, so CLS has historically had a number of um, currencies they call CLS currency pairs, which are the major currencies of the world, which you can manage through, through, through that bank um, between different banks. And they announced that for the currencies they don't offer through CLS, they were going to trade, as we call them, non-CLS currency pairs, or they were going to create a service for non-CLS currency pairs to be uh, reconciled and settled through uh, Hyperledger, through a blockchain, through DLT. Now, this was interesting because it seemed like major banks from around the world would be using blockchain and DLT for one of their most major uh, functions in the world, which is exchanging currency. But then uh, subsequently, they announced that their core infrastructure upgrades, so the stuff they do with their main currencies, was absolutely not going to use blockchain and DLT. Indeed, we saw the Bank of England when they looked at how they were going to upgrade their real-time growth settlement system. They looked at blockchain and DLT and decided it simply wasn't mature enough, but they wanted to be compatible with it. And so I think what we're seeing is a bit of realism creeping into the market, a bit of recognition that when we're dealing with incumbent industries and incumbent technology stacks, it's actually probably not always wise to go to an entirely new paradigm and an entirely new stack and assume it's going to work just because it's new, especially when the technology is really early. But then the flip side of that might also be true. It might be the case that they, in two, three years' time, this technology is ready, and if they'd been using it for two, three years and had a good run-up at it, they could have had something more efficient, cheaper, better, and with a whole bunch of other ancillary benefits that, that we hadn't considered. What are your thoughts on that, Colin? Do you think that this is uh, just a sign of the times? Do you think it was uh, conditional on you know, the, the partnership involved? Maybe the companies didn't get on? What, what do you think is going on? I, I, I would imagine that it was quite complex um, equation that ultimately boiled down to it potentially costing more money than they originally thought or taking longer than they originally thought. A lot of these things, they're, they're big companies. And I know uh, we, we come back to this whole idea of hunting whales uh, being the, the popular thing from Mark Andreessen talking about how unpredictable the big companies are. Uh, this is a case of a very, very large company, Euroclear, uh, which managed literally trillions and trillions of dollars worth of securities, uh, looking at reinventing something quite large, which is billion dollar gold markets. I have to say in this, I, I would love to know more about why it blew up. But I think at the end of the day, Paxos still is going to try to build this and they may have found a better way to do it uh, that is more economically viable for them. And I wish them all the luck in doing that. I would like to see Euroclear focus more on their core businesses of securities and upgrading that, which we realize will take a long time because that is... Um, it's great to look at new ventures where you don't necessarily have a foot in the door. Uh, it's even better to look at radically reinventing your business. And Simon, this is something you guys at 11FS talk endlessly about with bank CEOs and, and other companies. 
it's not just about how can I set up a, a new business that maybe represents three or four new clients on the side. This is really, I have 10,000 clients. How do I convert them to a new platform or get them to do something that they've never done before? There's a lot more upside than that. Yeah, there's a lot of upside there for the taking. And uh, what are the baby steps to figuring out how you really take that by the horns and, and make it happen? And those baby steps mean thinking like a startup. Um, we believe digital is only 1% done for a reason at 11FS. Um, Colin, thank you very much for the uh, for the promo there. Um, if you want to find out more about uh, Colin, how do you do that, Colin? Uh, at Twitter, uh, at Colin G. Platt. Cool. So a big thanks to Colin. We have an interview with Gideon Greenspan coming up. All right. So we have Gideon Greenspan here to talk about uh, coin sciences, multi-chain 1.0 and what he's seen in the blockchain space. Thank you very much for joining us today, Gideon. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So before we go ahead and jump right into it, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what coin sciences is? Sure. So um I'm a tech entrepreneur um, from forever. Since I was a teenager, I've been building uh, software companies of various types and, and websites. Um, founded CoinScience just three and a half years ago together with um, Michael Rosensev and Simon Liu. Based on the fundamental kind of uh, insight that blockchains were a very interesting new way of uh, doing things and cryptocurrencies, while they're interesting, are probably not the most interesting thing and certainly not the only interesting thing that can be done with blockchains. And we started the company kind of on that assumption uh, we began by developing a protocol called CoinSpark, which was an enhancement for Bitcoin. Uh, but after about nine months, we changed focus. And, and for the last two and a half years, a little bit more, we've been focused completely on developing multi-chain. That, that's really interesting. I want to get into that in a moment. But uh, before we kind of get into the reasons why why things are different, why you change, uh, let's let's kind of focus on why multi-chain? What, what are the issues are you trying to solve? As you said, you're, you're not focusing on cryptocurrency, which is quite interesting. Uh, you're focusing on private blockchains. What What is a private blockchain? Why are you building multi-chain? And why not use central databases? Yeah, so a private blockchain can be defined as um, a new type of database, which can be safely shared across trust boundaries between multiple organizations without putting any individual organization in charge. So it's a bona fide new type of database uh, with particular trade-offs uh, for and against it compared to other types of databases, such as you know centralized relational databases. Um, to be honest, the problem we were trying to solve was the problem that we saw lots of people trying to, to build these things and trying to build applications on it, and they didn't have a platform to work with. Um, and so we were never focused on one specific problem. Uh, we were focused on creating a tool that enabled a wide range of application builders and solution builders to kind of have something to build on top on, just exactly in the same way that they use relational databases to build other type of applications on top of those. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess there's been very big news from you guys just, just this morning. You've released 1.0. Does that mean you're in production and everybody's ready for prime time? Yeah, so so our, our platform is certainly ready for prime time. Um, it's, been, it's had about 40 releases since the initial release two and a half years ago, and it's been pretty stable along the way. Um, it also means that there's quite a few projects being built on multi-chain with a view to release in the next six months or so, um, know that they can go into production because they'll be based on a platform which is itself in production. So it's a milestone for us, uh, although we kind of got there in quite a gradual and continual way over the last two and a half years. So uh, that's really interesting that you mentioned that um, you, you have a lot of people gradually coming in. You've announced several new partners and you're up to, if I understand correctly, over 40 partners that are working with you in some capacity on your platform? That's right. So these are, these are various different types of companies that are using multi-chain uh, for their projects or for their products. Um, and, and we work with them in the sense that we provide them with kind of uh, support and help in using the, using the software. Um, and we kind of cross-market each other in that we, you know, we list them as partners and they can show the multi-chain logo in their own materials as well. So um, it's just a way for us to kind of formalize the relationship that we were already developing with many people building on multi-chain. And it's also a way to signal to the market that unlike many blockchain companies, we're not focused on developing specific applications for specific verticals, and we don't do projects for customers coming in. We're focused on building that core platform, which then many, many other people can then build on for all sorts of different purposes. And that, that's fascinating that you say, because I know a lot of people have kind of really focused on uh, the specific use cases around blockchains uh, and tried to, to go into something. What I also find really interesting is a lot of your partners are not financial services companies. They're in fact, uh, there's a lot of consultancies, but other types of companies. Can you talk to us a bit about why this might be the case or, or if I'm completely wrong in that point? Yeah, so no, you're absolutely right. I, I would say that of all the sectors 
working with blockchain, finance is still the, the one that has the most activity, but it's by no means exclusive. Um, the fundamental reason is that there's nothing financially specific about a blockchain. The, the, the connection between the financial world and blockchains as a technology is an accident of history because uh, the banks noticed Bitcoin and it kind of shook them out of their slumber and they were the first sector to therefore notice that there's a new way of building these data sharing systems. But there's no connection whatsoever on a technical level and you can do any type of database related application on a blockchain if you want to. It could be a financial one and it could be others. So it just, it just represents the fact, I think, that over time the conversation has matured and you know, banks have realized that blockchains aren't going to solve all their problems. And many other industries have realized that blockchains have some applications within their own kind of sphere. And you, you've done a lot of work on that. And I, I want to delve into that in just a minute. But maybe you can share a, a bit about kind of some of the patterns and trends you are seeing amongst non-financial services, because I know a lot of our listeners do work in banks, uh, and a lot of them are interested in how this applies outside of the banking industry. Yeah, so um, a common pattern we're seeing is where a group of companies want to come together to create a shared archive of, of important contracts and other documents, and they want these documents to be uh, timestamped, notarized in such a way that you know, no individual party in that group uh, can violate that, that record. And we see that in financial services and also outside of financial services. We're also seeing in government, uh, there's, there's many cases where um, there's a reason not to put the control of a database under an individual office in an individual department you know, in one particular area of government. And so there's a desire to set up multiple nodes in multiple places to kind of collectively secure that data. And one interesting application that is in the finance sector, which is a bit of a surprise, is, is an internal blockchain application. Um, because, you know, blockchains are classically perceived as a way to allow multiple companies to coordinate with each other. And, and they certainly are useful for that. Um, but we see something inside the financial sector where you have kind of complex financial um, uh, conglomerates looking at using blockchains internally as a way to kind of manage their accounting and the transfer of assets internally. And that's in a case where they don't want to just have a central database in the headquarters. There's various different applications. And, you know, the pattern that we generally see is multiple parties want to secure a piece of data uh, between them. And there's also some cases where people want to move assets around. But that's really only one narrow example of what can be done with a system, which is a more general system for securing data between multiple parties. Okay, so uh, if I kind of understand, and, and if I walk this back, a, a lot of it is is not purely based on, as you said, moving assets, but there's also a really interesting point in there where you're working within, say, the same government, but maybe different departments or the same company, but uh, between different legal entities. Is it is it a trust issue that they're having? Is it a synchronization issue? Is it something else? So it's not. I wouldn't say it's a, it's a purely technical synchronization issue because you've always got the option of using a centralized database if you want to solve it. It's more like a situation where the level of trust between these different sections is not complete. And so, you know, either for trust reasons or for, for purely legal reasons or sometimes for regulatory reasons, these entities have to maintain more control over their data or over their assets than simply having a record in some other database in some other country. Uh, they need to maintain some kind of meaningful local control. And where you have that need for local control in multiple different locations, and correspondingly, you don't often have an issue of confidentiality, which is often a big problem for, for blockchain ideas. And that's a case where a blockchain has kind of finds a sweet spot where people are willing to see what each other are doing, but they're not willing to give up control over their own aspect of what they're doing to other parties in the system. And I think that that's a really, really good statement about where a lot of people are starting to look at this rather than just um, some of the early cases where it was um, not fully understanding where some of the the benefits of blockchain. I, I think it's great that you've encapsulated so much of that. Let's focus. We talked about this a little bit earlier. Can you tell us multi-chain compared to Bitcoin or also compared to maybe Fabric from Hyperledger or R3? What are you doing differently? What do you what is similar why, why have you made some of yeah, these architectural so choices? One of the uh, key aspects of multi-chain is its uh, proximity to Bitcoin in terms of its protocol, its transaction structure, its cryptography, you know, and, and its APIs and so on. We actually began developing multi-chain by forking Bitcoin Core, which is the code underlying Bitcoin. So, you know, and it's important for us to do that as a startup, because I think as a startup, if you want to develop a software platform from nothing, it's very difficult to get people persuaded to start engaging with what you're building if you're just a brand new company. So there's a sense in starting with an existing ecosystem and letting a lot of the tools that have been developed in that ecosystem kind of work with what you're building as well. So, so that's one reason, what's one thing that's kind of specific about multi-chain. Another thing we find when people 
tell us about how they work with the product is that it's incredibly easy to set up and use and deploy and configure. And I think quite a few of the blockchain platforms out there, without talking about specific ones, are quite large, complex, multiple moving parts. Uh, and I'm not saying they don't have their place, but there's certainly room in the market for a kind of very simple, straightforward, easy to install, easy to get up and running platform where everything is just kind of self-contained. And, and that makes it really easy to think about deploying, you know, hundreds of nodes in all sorts of different environments uh, where each node can be deployed by a straightforward system administrator without them having deep knowledge of the blockchain itself. So, so that's another characteristic that's different. Uh, the third thing is the type of, um, if, if you think about what people do on a blockchain, so there's a few different categories. You know, there's assets, uh, there's, there's decentralized computation, and, and there's data. Um, and then there's all the administrative stuff. So, so multi-chain is focused on um, assets, a very simple, straightforward model for asset issuance and exchange and so on. Um, but also we have a lot of functionality there relating to storing and retrieving general purpose data. So multi-chain has a set of features relating called streams, um, which enable you to essentially create a publish-subscribe model on a blockchain where every item is timestamped and it's signed by certain entities and it has keys for easy retrieval. Um, and I think that's an area where multi-chain is quite strong compared to some of the other platforms for just general data storage and retrieval. And, and we've optimized the product you know, very well for that kind of uh, activity as well. So it can process around 1,000 uh, transactions a second you know, across a whole network, uh, which you don't see with many of the other platforms, which are focused on more complex models of kind of computation, where everything that takes place on the blockchain is a computation. And I'm guessing when you say you, you've kind of boiled some of these things down, and, and what's really interesting to me is thinking back to the earlier days of the internet, where what really started to take off was the thing that was just, you know, plug in and go, because before that, everything was quite difficult. So you, you've kind of gone that direction. Are you using smart contracts? So no, multi-chain is not currently a smart contracting platform. Um, we certainly know how we would add support for something like the EVM, the Ethereum virtual machine, and where that would fit into our product. But we're not doing that yet. We think smart contracts actually are a relatively narrow uh, type of use case for blockchains. And there's kind of much broader use cases, which are around general data storage and retrieval. And smart contracts also introduce a lot of vulnerabilities which aren't in the platform itself, but are based on the code that people write and run on a blockchain. And obviously, we've seen endless examples of that in the public Ethereum network. So we don't think smart contracts are kind of the low-hanging fruit for blockchains, um, but we certainly don't rule them out in the long term as something that we will add to our product. Okay, that, that's really interesting. I like that there is a, a method into why you put these things in, why you haven't put them in, and really kind of drill down to where blockchains are efficient and where maybe they're less efficient uh, at this point. Can we talk about a blog post you put out at the end of last year um, entitled How to Spot a Half-Baked Blockchain uh, Use Case? We talked earlier a little bit about um, sharing data, but not necessarily having a single point. Can you talk to us about some of the other things you're seeing out there that maybe are a little bit less strong at this point or maybe aren't best suited in a blockchain? So there's, there's, there's two kind of ways in which blockchains come out half-baked. One is uh, specific use cases. You know, So an example would be a use case where confidentiality is absolutely paramount. And in that case, a blockchain is probably not the right solution. You're going to have to accept that if you want confidentiality between the participants to be paramount, you probably want a central party uh, maintaining the database and each participant only seeing exactly the things that involve them. So that's one type of half-bakedness. And the other type, which I focused on in that blog post, is, is platforms which I see, which I call half-baked blockchain platforms. And these are platforms which are calling themselves blockchains and they have some uh, notion of uh, blocks which are chained together. But the platforms aren't solving the fundamental problem that, in my view, and many others' view, is the point of blockchains. And that is to enable a single shared database to be shared without anyone having control over that database. And, and there's various examples of that. And again, I'm not going to talk about specific products, but you know, a blockchain platform where all the participants have to use the same hosting platform for their nodes. So everyone's got their own node, but they're all being run by the same company. Well, that company is in charge of the database in that point. So why not just use a centralized database? Or you have some blockchain platforms where there is a notion of it being distributed across multiple nodes, but uh, there's one node which is in charge and has to validate every single transaction. And if that node doesn't like a transaction or if that node goes down, then the whole blockchain breaks. So there's various examples of these type where there's kind of... Um, for those of, the who, those of you who know the phrase a cargo cult kind of response where you're missing the point of what you're doing, but you kind of go through the trappings. And we see quite a lot of that in the blockchain space. And, and I would say also, to be clear, there's, there's, there's many platforms out there which uh, aren't half-baked um, and which are doing things in a way which I think makes sense as well. 
Okay, so I, and there's something really interesting in what you said. I know a lot of people are kind of looking at the terminology around whether we're talking about blockchains or distributed ledgers, and they're coming up with other terms like shared ledgers or I, I heard synchronous ledger technology. It sounds like the, the fact of distribution and making sure there's no single point is kind of central to this. Would you agree with that statement? Well, you know, we, it's been a big problem. You know, you've got the cryptocurrency world thinks that we shouldn't use the word blockchain for anything that's not open to the whole world. So it's, it's a big challenge, this terminology, and I assume that it'll just resolve itself over time. So I try not to get involved in arguing too much about which word we should be using, but instead trying to focus on, you know, what is a coherent product category? What can we define as a set, as a set of functionality that a product can provide, which then makes it deserve its own term? You know, and, and at the moment, at least the most popular term tends to be blockchain, although there are obviously DLT and shared ledgers and other things going around as well. So I try and avoid the argument over terminology because there's just no right answer. You know, it's just about different people's opinions. And eventually, I think, you know, we'll, we'll come to agreement on something that makes sense. I completely agree on that. So uh, can we talk about what's next, what, what people should be looking out for um, and maybe how they can get involved? Yeah, sure. So as you say, 1.0 is entering production today. Um, we've already started developing Multichain 2.0. Uh, it's going to come in two versions, a community open source version and an enterprise version with additional functionality. We've published a roadmap on our blog for the uh, community version. So uh, that's there for anyone uh, who's interested in reading it. Uh, features like um, deep support for JSON, uh, transaction filtering, and, and blockchain upgrading. Uh, we're not publishing openly our enterprise uh, roadmap, but we are talking about it with our partners. So, so look out for that over the next year or two for those both to come out, and we're hard at work on those. In terms of getting involved, well, it's, first of all, Multichain is very easy to get started with. You come to the website, download the software, follow the tutorial, and within half an hour or an hour, you'll be up to speed on the main areas of the product's functionality. People are getting involved in terms of answering questions on the Q&A. There's a lot of activity there. Uh, quite a lot of people have developed third-party libraries for Multichain, so for all sorts of different languages, rather than talking to the Multichain API, you can just write code in the language you're familiar with and it takes care of that for you. And so people have started building tools as well uh, around the product and to demonstrate various things. So, you know, we're in the open source world and so we hope that will encourage a lot of people to engage with the product and build a lot of tools around it. Um, and often what they can do is they can take something written for Bitcoin and very easily adapt it to work with Multichain. So there's kind of a quick win there as well. That sounds fantastic. And all of that is on multichain.com, correct? That's right. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciated hearing more about it. And we, we look forward to uh, future successes, Multichain 2.0 and many, many more partners. Thank you very much for having me. Good day. So coming up next, Colin and Chris discuss the fallout from the user-activated hard fork. What happened, guys? Right, so I'm here with Chris Berniski to talk about the the recent Bitcoin Cash hard fork. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So we are just about 24 hours after this has happened. So a lot of this is still developing. What what have we seen, Chris? Well, first, the fork was a somewhat uneventful occurrence, um, and it's not like there's um, this big explosion and this splitting of chains, as the media would seem to make it out sometimes. Um, really almost a, a non-event. There, there were a number of countdowns um, to the fork, and then you know we had to wait for the first um, Bitcoin cash block to be forked, uh, to, to be mined, um, in order to really make it official. And so that happened, and the first block was 1.8 megabytes. Um, so about 80% bigger than a one megabyte block. So it was a bigger block. That is um, a notable occurrence. But then other than that, really uh, kind of a non-event. The, the the interesting stuff is still yet to be seen. Yeah, I, I, I saw that. So originally they were supposed to mine a block possibly earlier than that, that 1.8 megabyte block. Um, but there was something in the code where it wasn't, it had to be at least one megabyte and they didn't have enough in the, the mempool, the the cache of transactions that need to be cleared. So that delayed it a bit. Um, another thing that I thought was quite interesting, Chris, there was actually two, um, potentially two blockchain splits on the same day. So the first was around this user uh, activated soft fork, which actually ended, ended up going quite smoothly and we didn't hear anything about it. And then the second one with Bitcoin Cash. Uh, what can you tell us about um, the, the first one there, about the UASF? So UASF, um, which is BIP-148, my understanding with this is there was a earlier lock-in, right, for 
SegWit 2x that required people to signal for another BIP, um, which basically made it so that BIP 148 wouldn't cause a soft fork. Um, that was at least my latest understanding of um, the compromise here. So, so that one went off without a hitch then, and we, we came in with this new one. And in Bitcoin Cash, I heard something that everybody that held a Bitcoin also got one of these new Bitcoin Cash or BCC, BCH tokens. Is that correct? Yes. And so it's best that we call them BCH because BCC is Bitcoin Connect already. And um, Zuko Wilcox was actually tweeting about this, and he's right that we should, you know, out of respect for them, use BCH. Um, so yes, effectively what's happened, you know, the uh, at least my understanding is the BIP 148, right, that didn't create a, a new coin, so we don't have three. We've got two. We've got Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. And basically the way this works is we now have two separate blockchains with two separate native assets within those blockchains. But what's interesting is the Bitcoin in Bitcoin original, let's call it, and the Bitcoin in Bitcoin Cash um, are under the same public-private key pairs. And so this is where there's a careful process. Um, Aaron Von Weirdum um, from Bitcoin Magazine wrote a good po post for beginners on getting your Bitcoin cash out. But you do have to be careful in, in basically the way in which you separate your two Bitcoin because they are secured by the same private key. That private key can be used on two separate blockchains. And so often it's a, it's a better idea to send your current Bitcoin to a new um, address that is secured by a new private key before even trying to recover your Bitcoin cash. Okay, uh, that that's a really good point. So if anybody listening has Bitcoin or Bitcoin cash uh, as well as a result of this, definitely read up on that before you do anything um, and try to figure out how to secure those. Now, um, these were given away originally, uh, quote unquote, for free. What's a Bitcoin cash Bitcoin worth nowadays? Right now, um, I was looking at Bittrex and it was trading at about a third of a Bitcoin third of a Bitcoin. So a Bitcoin is about $2,800 in front of me, plus or minus. Yeah. So we're, we're pushing almost a thousand, um, a thousand dollars, which, um, is much higher than I expected. I mean, the futures market going into this was in the four to 500 range. Um, so it's about doubled since there. Now there's a few important points to consider with this one, clearly an extremely new asset. So these markets are going to be really volatile as we see with um, early stage crypto assets that have come to market. You can think of BCH as the same. The other thing that's going on here and what a lot of people on Twitter have been talking about is that um, they're having a hard time moving their BCH to exchanges because as you had mentioned before we went live, it's been nine hours, um, I think, since a BCH block has been mined. So people are actually having a hard time moving their Bitcoin to exchanges, which then means if people want to sell, um, then they're having a hard time selling their BCH. So it's created this abnormal market. It's not operating in full efficiency. And so we haven't, I, I wouldn't say we've found the equilibrium price yet. Okay. So it's, we're, we're not effectively clearing between exchanges because I can't take my Bitcoin cash out of uh, Bittrex, as you mentioned, and move it into another exchange like uh, Kraken or, or any of the other exchanges supporting Bitcoin Cash. Right. So withdrawals as well are, are currently um, not enabled. And this again is, um, this is the exchanges being prudent, right? It's not a trivial task to protect um, both assets. There can be um, different kinds of attacks that are performed. And so I think, you know, a measure of prudence with all of this is the right thing to do on the exchanges part. And, you know, the traders can wait. It's not going to um, kill anyone because they, they they had to wait a few hours or a few days um, to trade. So you'd mentioned, as we discussed before the show, that there'd been about a nine-hour lag when we were recording this on Wednesday afternoon. And the last block that happened um, early in the morning UK time on Wednesday, um, out of the 12 blocks or so that we can see in front of us now, um, about nine of them had been mined not by via BTC or this this large Chinese exchange and mining pool, which publicly supported it. They they've received about three of the the blocks on the new Bitcoin Cash. The other nine seem to be with this um, interesting group, which nobody's heard of, 
and lists in the Coinbase or in the beginning of each block an address to a hostel in Hong Kong um, on Hennessy Road, quite interestingly. What, what I found very interesting about this is the first block that they, they got, which was the, the third block in this new Bitcoin Cash blockchain, um, they actually signaled SegWit, which was very interesting considering that Bitcoin Cash was supposed to be rejecting SegWit. So I don't know if there's some kind of uh, trolling going on and, and wordplay with hostile and hostile mining, uh, if there's something afoot or if this is perfectly normal and natural. I guess it's a developing story and I, I do look forward to continuing this. And I think, Chris, we need to get you back on next week to kind of give us a full five or six days once this thing started to kind of form and we understand what's going on. Um, but what else should people be looking at as they decide whether um, because of having uh, previously Bitcoin and now newfound Bitcoin cash, as well as this SegWit Bitcoin, what should we know? What should we look out for be careful of? I think for me right now, from an ecosystem health perspective for, for Bitcoin cash, and it's good you brought up the miners because that's the kernel of security, right? Is the hardware supporting these different assets. And right now with Bitcoin Cash, miners are actually losing money in supporting it because the blocks are being minted at such a slow rate because we haven't had a difficulty adjustment, right? So with the way Bitcoin works is the difficulty of finding blocks should adjust um, periodically. And that takes a while. Uh, because you have to reach a certain number of blocks in order to adjust. And so I think right now, um, the current calculation is Bitcoin Cash is going to mine roughly a block every two hours. So that's you know 12x the normal intended 10-minute time. Um, and that's going to go on for, for three months. So if there's a significant attrition of the mining hash rate, and you had mentioned that's happening already, right, then people holding BCH want to be careful because the chain becomes very vulnerable to attack, right? It's not a very secure chain. I think, so that's one thing from an ecosystem health perspective. You know, we mentioned being really careful with your Bitcoin if you're going to try and recover your BCH and reading articles about how to do that. And then the third one, which is the, the developing, well, they're all developing stories, but, you know, we have to see what's going to happen with exchanges because things are not fully operational. Um, the, the withdrawal process is not enabled. It's creating weird order books. And so if people are going to be on exchanges trading, they also need to be really careful and not get ahead of themselves thinking that, you know, oh, wow, look, this is $1,000. Um, I should buy more of this, right? They need to really be aware of the mechanics of the underlying chain and the exchanges uh, which are trading the asset. That is very good advice. So, and I think with all of this, um, definitely do your own research, uh, figure out what's going on before you decide to invest your own money, whether it's uh, fiat currencies or in other kinds of cryptocurrencies. Chris, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much for all of this. Um, very sage advice at a time of uh, a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me on. And uh, I think we will all stay glued to the computer screen for the next week. Thank you very much, Chris. So now we're going to throw over to Simon and Reto Trinkler from Melonport. Great. So we are here. I have uh, Colin Platt joining me for an interview with Reto Trinkler, the chairman and CTO of Melonport. Reto, how are you, sir? Very good. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for being on Blockchain Insider this week. Uh, so Melonport and Melon Protocol. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, what is uh, Melonport, um, what is the Melonport Protocol, and, and how did you guys uh, you know, decide to, to, to build this organization? Sure. So essentially, um, Melonport is the private company behind Melon. Melon is an open source blockchain protocol that seeks to enable participants to set up, manage, and invest in digital assets management strategies in a way that reduces barriers to entry. Essentially, I guess in simpler words, it's a set of smart contracts that can hold assets and that can essentially, uh, in, in those we can code like requirements on, on how this asset can be managed. And I guess the result of it is it's an asset management structure and we can uh, take this structure and kind of multiply it. So like everyone gets to have their own asset management strategy or their own digital hedge fund. 
Okay, so let's just let's just think that through for a second because we've just seen an explosion in token sales and digital assets. I can't get in a taxi at the moment without somebody telling me about I've just bought some ETH and have you heard about this new token sale? This thing has gone global. It's gone massive. And what you're saying is rather than trying to use just wallets and individual services to try and manage that, you could actually manage the whole thing as a portfolio. And what you guys have said is that in traditional financial services, we had asset management who did this for us uh, and in modern financial services in the in the crypto asset space everyone could be their own hedge fund everyone could be their own asset manager and that's what melon protocol is designed to do is, is that fair yeah that, that's exactly it so yeah essentially we we allow people to um yeah as you say be their own asset managers and like we we have kind of this slogan i guess like from months and millions to seconds and cents like um, with, with our technology costs you about 30 cents and takes you about 14 seconds and you, you can have your own hedge fund. Yeah, I guess it's really a revolution in itself, like in, in asset management. Absolutely. If you talk to people in the asset management industry, they've been sitting on uh, a decent profit margin, whether they performed poorly or, or well over the last sort of 20, 30 years. And we've seen in the UK, at least, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, has launched a review into that industry saying that it looks uncompetitive. Uh, they've had high fixed cost bases, And what I'm hearing from that industry is we're starting to see the beginnings of people looking at that infrastructure and those processes and, and really starting again. And you guys are kind of out there on the disruptive side saying, um, actually, if you could reduce the cost of creating a, an asset manager or, or a hedge fund or any type of uh, structure, then why wouldn't everyone have an agent or software doing that for them? I think that's that's super interesting. So, you know, talk to me a, a little bit about sort of how you got into um, evolving the platform. Um, and really, you talk a lot about having partners wanting to work on that platform. So you know, explain to me, what is the platform and then why you're working with partners on on modules i think that's a really interesting strategy that i've not really seen people who are building smart contract based businesses people who are building this sort of uh, business do before so it's, it's an interesting one sure um if i just may uh, expand on your previous point like um about essentially the high fees of of traditional asset management and it's it's not that those people like I guess that they are greedy or anything. It's just like that the system that is in place forces them to take a lot of fees. Like it's it's incredibly expensive to manage a fund right now. And so the technology we're building is really also beneficial to them. Like it's not just that we disrupt, we also help them a lot. And yeah, we, we make everything more efficient. So, okay, so what is the platform? So essentially the smart contracts are a bit cumbersome to interact with. Um, so we kind of built... Uh, an interface around it. So I guess that's kind of the platform or the, the portal side of it. Then this concept of modules. So it's it, it's essentially like it's, um, I guess, a strategic approach on how to design a protocol. Um, if, if you want to design a protocol, you better design it in a way that you believe like most people would agree upon, like the, the, the things you define. Otherwise it's, it's like, a cent otherwise it's difficult to get consensus on. So if we look at essentially the Bitcoin protocol, then we see kind of a protocol for accounting and it just more or less enforces like some basic rules of uh, double book entry accounting. And that's something like most people would agree upon. So you, you send money to someone, the protocol should deduct you that balance and add to the, the recipient. That, that's something you, you get like a universal um, consensus quite easily. The Ethereum protocols, essentially the, the Ethereum protocol implements the rules of some basic Turing complete machine. And as long as this basic Turing complete machine is kind of, you know, logical in itself, then it's quite easy to get a universal agreement upon. So essentially, and like what we're trying to do with Melon is now we're trying to design a protocol for asset management. Um, but we believe we have some parts in it that are hard or are difficult to get universal agreement upon. So for example, one of those components we believe is price feeds. So like, especially in the crypto com community, like um, you might not want to have a price feed from a big company. You might rather have like a price feed from a new startup. So essentially like all of, all of these parts that we believe that there's a lot of opinion about it, we just outsource into modules. So that's kind of where, where, the, where the module aspect comes 
into play. That makes a lot of sense because the market's still early. You don't know what the right answers are going to be, but you do believe, I think fundamentally, that this crypto asset space is interesting and that people will want their own um, asset manager. But also, asset managers themselves have high fixed cost bases and are looking for ways to disrupt or transform their own business. So um, it means that you can create a basic set of protocols around which people can build lots of different things. So. Um, Talk to me a little bit. We've talked on this show about the difference between private blockchains or public chains. Um, private ones being you're uh, operated by a group of people and not everybody can see what's going on, and public chains being uh, the, the likes of your Bitcoins and your Ethereums and, and so on. Um, do you focus on um, just private or just public? And uh, what are the implications of your choice? Sure. Um, so, so we focus on public. I think we have a strong belief that information should be transparent especially when it when it's when it comes to finance like bitcoin really pioneered this like everything on the bitcoin blockchain is is public like everything on ethereum is public uh, and we want to be the same way like we believe the the new kinds of technology the new kinds of system are systems of trust or that essentially that's that is really in the essence what this tech, the blockchain technology brings is like it reduces the requirements for trusts so if you have like a private blockchain, um, then essentially you need to trust again a certain set of people. I think you just said something really interesting around um, trust and using public blockchains. I mean, um, we, we talked earlier about regulations coming into this. Transparency is massive inside of these public blockchains. What do you what do you think incumbents are thinking about um, the way they trade and maybe letting information out and how that might affect their investors and their investments? Yeah, so it, it's a new approach. So the good thing is um, your your trading strategy can remain proprietary. So this is all off-chain, um, but all of the trades are on-chain and all you all the positions you hold are publicly um, visible on the chain. And we believe that's a good thing. Like in the end, as an investor, this might be really beneficial to you, like to, to have at any point in time to see exactly that the fund you invested in actually ha- has still all of those assets. Uh, and all of the trades are are public. Like you, you, you would immediately see like essentially bad trading would immediately be visible. So uh, yeah, I think that's we believe that's a good thing. It, it seems like it would definitely help around things like structured products and and what we saw during the crisis with things like um, CDOs and collateralized debt obligations, where we thought we had something in the fund that was um, highly rated like government bonds that turned out to be junk mortgages written on on uh, uncreditworthy investors. So I, I think that's a really interesting challenge and will definitely shake things up in the industry. Um, there are certainly drawbacks in that, and I think that will be something that uh, we'll have to experiment around, and I think it'll be exciting to watch that pan out. Absolutely, Colin. And, and I think um, we're, we're running short on, on time here with Reto, so I just want to ask him two more questions. Um, first up, you know, digital assets, we talked about crypto assets a couple of times, tokens and, and, and the like. Um, do you see this becoming an opportunity or even an asset class? And following on that, what do you think of the recent um, SEC guidance um, into the token space? Is this a, a good thing? So crypto um, definitely is is or will be its own asset class like there there's no doubt in my mind because it's it's not just crypto assets like these kind of these protocol tokens it's also like a lot of companies now just um collateralize stuff and put it on the blockchain so for example like with digix where you have like gold traded on the blockchain and you see this more and more and more and more so it's yeah it, it's definitely going to be its own asset uh, asset class maybe even beyond because all of this stuff like real estate bonds uh, like classical shares you can put everything on a blockchain and there you have it tradable so you 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 can tokenize pretty much uh, anything so i yeah can't see how how it wouldn't become its own asset class um yeah the sec report it's definitely like uh, i guess in in our space we're looking for some guidance and for it's problematic for us because we don't really have any guidance like we don't it's always kind of a gray area because the law is, hasn't just ha- hasn't really um, caught up. So we we we, we kind of operate in an uncertain area. 
Um, and so whenever there is um, guidance, that's that's a good thing. So clear message to regulators there. Give us more guidance. Indeed, an interesting response as well, that actually the guidance is useful and helpful wherever possible. Uh, I think for anybody building something to, to get that clarity it is helpful. And I certainly thought that the uh, the SEC response was, was very thoughtful on that front. So before we let you go, Reto, can you just tell us a little bit about your manager challenge? What is it and uh, how can people find out more? So the challenge is, is like for, for anyone who would like to try out this new technology, um, for, for us, it's a great case. Like it, it's a fantastic testing case. It's, it's great to drive customer acquisition, I guess. If you want to find out more like Twitter, um, Melonport is probably the best way to stay in touch. Like we started with t-shirts, but we intend to put on proper price money. So the uh, the manager challenge using Melonport, find out more at Melonport on Twitter. Um, certainly an interesting one. Uh, Reto, I'm sure we'll hear a lot more from you guys going forward, but we are up against it on time on this podcast. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show with us this week, and I'm sure we'll speak to you soon. Okay. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for everybody for being on the show this week and thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast. We're keeping the file size nice and low, so we're not going to take up too much space on your phone. Please leave us a review on iTunes. I cannot tell you how much that means to us. It really helps the show. Tell your friends and colleagues too. We'll have a lot more Blockchain Insider coming soon, whether you're on a flight to Edinburgh, flight to the USA, wherever you are, we're here for you. Uh, Check out 11fs.com if you want to know more about the team who bring you Blockchain Insider every week. For now, goodbye.